Hey everybody and welcome to Season 2, Episode B. We have to have a conversation about how I'm going to do that. <laughs> See, this is what happens when you, when you retool a, a format after a season, right? Yeah, new, you know why uh, you have really fallen off the wagon. Uh, you didn't even say what the podcast was called. Um, I feel like if you clicked play, you already know. But yeah, you're right. I, you know what? I, I, it's, it's not been a it's not been a productive evening because I got I got a new microphone and I got a new whatever this thing with all the knobs is called um, audio interface and mixer and all that stuff. And it's an it's a it's a Rode mic. It's incredibly well reviewed. The interface is a is a Behringer and it's also really well reviewed. And I thought, okay, this is going to take my stuff up to the next level. And I listened to a bunch of like. YouTube videos of people using the mic. I was like, that sounds like that's the sound I'm going for. And I had it all plugged in and connected to my computer. And I was like, this sounds like garbage. And so I was looking at all these YouTube videos, like getting the settings right and the the gain and the leveling and all that. I was like, why am I? I don't understand what's going on. This is driving me crazy. And then I ha- there's a little... Um, and God bless... God bless Road, the Australian company. They have one of those little tiny quick start guides. Yep. And I, it turns out that I was talking into the bottom of the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So I had it like, I mean, only Will can see. We may actually, but it's like, it's kind of hard to see, but I was like, on a lot of these mics, it's hanging down from the boom arm. And you talk into the side of it, right? Like on the on the Yeti, that's how it worked. This you talk into the top of it. And so I was like, oh, I'm gonna do it like the little stick man in the picture in the quick start guide. <laughs> <gasps> it sounds like it should. So yeah, that's that's how I wasted my Saturday afternoon. <laughs> well, with that being said, welcome to uh, the, des- the number one Depeche Mode retroactive retrospective podcast on the internet. No, I mean it's my it's Mastication Nation. You figured that out by now. Yeah. Yeah, if you, again, like if you the little picture playing on whatever device you're playing on should uh, have told you that. But yeah, geez, <laughs> I'm a little bit distracted apparently. But hey, you know, here we are, um, second episode, well, third episode technically of this of this new season, this this new format. And again, like you guys with Australia, and you know, you you did a great job, Will, of of Sherpaing that episode. Cause I'm, <laughs> I, I've never been to Australia, so I didn't really know how much I could contribute to the conversation other than my love of Tim Tams. But apparently we did okay, at least according to the Twitter feedback we got. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think my favorite piece of feedback was from at underscore Dan and Dan, 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 Dan. got it. Got it. Who's a a layovers listener. That's the only reason why I know uh, the name, uh, how to pronounce that. Yeah. Uh, And he said, as an Australian, I'm generally skeptical when foreigners cover Australia in any context, but I have to hand it to you both. Your Australia episode was great, particularly as a native Melbourneian. Uh, I love that word. I don't know why. I didn't know that Uh, was what they were called, but now I do. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. Uh, I was delighted that that it got the recognition it it truly deserves. Uh, Smiled ear to ear when you mentioned fairy bread. Though I'll admit, I've never had a pie floater. Again, we think it's regional. Uh, Hounds down, though, outside of Asia, Australia has some of the best Asian cuisine of any variety in the world, Uh, which we agree with, or I agree with. Um, And then lastly, that said, was a bit sad that the legendary Bunnings sausage sizzle, or any sausage sizzle in general, was not mentioned. Go Google democracy sausage to see how ubiquitous it has become. Love the work and can't wait to learn more about other countries I need to visit. Thank you so much, Dan. That was very kind of you. So, Alex, do you know what a, a bunning sausage sizzle is? No, I was about to ask you the same question because, no, I have absolutely no idea. Do you remember when you would go to an English um, uh, barbecue? Um, you get a sausage thrown into a white piece of bread and then stuff thrown on top of it? Yeah. Yeah, that's basically a, a Bunnings is a store, uh, and they do. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's like a, a it's like um, Home Depot of Australia, and so they would give you Home Depot. Give you, what it's like the yeah it's like it's the Home Depot it's like the warehouse store it's a it's a yeah it's a warehouse store uh, I guess cross between Costco and Home Depot I guess more like Home Depot I want to say. But why? So what does the heck did that have to do with sausages? So a. Uh, 
they do a sausage sizzle, which is in bread. And it's like, you know, how Costco has become famous for their hot dogs or their $3, their $3 chickens. Bunnings has ubiquitized the sausage sizzle, basically a, a poor man's uh, hot dog, but some may argue much, much better. I see. Okay. Okay. Well, wow, yes. yeah, I, I did. I like that. That sounds good. Um, I'm always up for a, one of those. There's even an advice article, vice.com article from 2018. <laughs> and the opening line is Australians lose their shit over a bunning sausage sizzle. <laughs> you know what? I'm always down for that. I think it sounds really, really good. I, yeah. I like things like that, especially when it's like, you know, simple and easy. Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I also saw that uh, that Fear Range uh, was doing a uh, matcha Tim Tam Slam. So that was interesting. I'd like to know how that was. Uh, matcha being pulled through the uh, opposing corners of a Tim Tam. Uh, I, I checked in with our old my old roommates Greg and Nick, and they were very very happy to hear that we were talking about uh, their their tea consumption. Uh, at oh uni. yeah. And uh, rating all the Australian soap operas, we got really sidetracked during the Super Bowl and talked about, um, you know, if you were to rank uh, Golden Globes and Oscar winners based on who started on what soap opera, Neighbors or Home and Away, who would win? And I think Home and Away sort of takes the takes the lead there. But uh, for any of you who have no idea what we're talking about, this is only applicable to Australia and English people who like really campy, over the top sitcom uh, soap operas. Yeah, I I don't know why I got dragged into them as well when I was at school. Uh, there's some some good watching and some very famous people emerged from them, of course. Yes, which we don't need to go into right now. But um, uh, so that was that was fun. Thank you guys for the for the feedback, uh, James Haddon. Uh, I think uh, I, James, I can't figure out if you lived in Hong Kong or just are very fond of it. But uh, he said um, that the mentions of Hong Kong made him miss the city very much. Um, and I want to, I want to go back to Twitter in a second, but I, I did something on Instagram on the attache Instagram mastication nation doesn't have an Instagram account. I can't figure out why a food podcast doesn't have an Instagram account, but instead of reinventing the wheel, just follow attache travel all one word on Instagram, because I did something recently and I asked, um, in a story, if you left the country that you live in or the country that you're from, if you've already left, what food would you miss? And the answers, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. It was so interesting what people, a lot of Mexican food for people in California mm. and Mexicans, um, but specifically tacos and stuff. But then this sort of ultra specific, like uh, there was one that was mushy peas from a specific stall in Nottingham's Victoria Market. And I, okay. I love, I love kind of i guess it's all esoterica like that I, I it's just lovely to hear so and i i shared a bunch of the answers on there so do make sure you follow us on there because we'll I'll, we'll keep asking questions like that because i just i like to know what people are eating especially in lockdown um i want so going back to twitter quickly before we crack on with uh with what we're drinking and all of that uh rob hinchcliffe who's a legend um i'm sure many of you have heard us mention him on various platforms so he's at hinchcliffe with an E, double F-E at the end, on Twitter. And he he lives in London, lives in Crystal Palace, and his address is. Uh, he, <laughs> <laughs> he, he did um, some lockdown meal box reviews. And this is such a good idea. And he, he sent them to us uh, at Mastication NTN on Twitter. So he did Shoryu Ramen, who were great. Uh, Bao, who are also great. I mentioned Bao on our first episode back. That's where I had the milk oolong milk mm -hmm. whiskey drinky thing from Deshum, legendary yep uh and decatur and they were all bow apparently wasn't wasn't that good that got three padlocks lockdown padlocks three years a very yeah, clever no, chap very, yeah. very clever chap uh show you got four uh Deshum got four for their bacon nan which is oth when it's in the restaurant so i'm glad it travels well and decatur was five padlocks and five shrimps because they specialize in um southern southern american yeah, shrimp I, I, boils I, like you had at your wedding yeah i mean that was a new england clam bake get it right but yes i still understand the concepts and look at the pictures this is just exactly the same thing <laughs> um 
I, I knew all of those restaurants except for Decatur, and I was kind of assuming, given the fact that Decatur is a very common southern Louisiana-style word name, uh, that uh, it was what you inferred. So that's cool. I mean, it's like low, low country boils seem to be see, catching on in, in England. Not when I was there. You couldn't even get a crawfish to save your life. No, I think this is, must be a new thing, but uh, I'm all for it. If we had more time, there's a wonderful little um, mythological urban legend about why crawfish exist in Louis in the swamps, um, and it has to do with Canadians. So maybe for another yeah. time. Yeah. Well, no, I want to know the story of that. But uh, yeah, we have a lot to a lot to cover in the B episode before exactly. we dive into that. Uh, what are you drinking? Well, in uh, in reference to our subject du jour. I am drinking. Ah, okay. So he's drinking a nice, the Stella. A nice can of Stella. Uh, we'll get into it. The The B is for Belgium. Um, we will talk about Stella later on when we talk about the drinks. But uh, I, will, I will tease this and say that the marketing team at Stella had a complete like clean slate when they came to the U S and didn't have any sort of the preconceived notions about what is considered in England. And uh, they ran with that. It is an expensive beer over here, which is so ridiculous and funny, but you know, it hits the spot. It is a Pilsner. It is tasty when you want it. And all other stereotypes aside, they do not exist in North America. How about you? Yeah, what are you drinking? It, I think it's a very old stereotype. I think it's, I don't know, from the sixties and seventies in the UK. Um, Apparently they tried to get cheap. rid of the, the stereotype in the 90s. There was a whole thing with Tony Blair involved. But uh, anyway, what are you drinking? Uh, uh, so I'm still not drinking uh, alcohol. But I I on the last episode I was talking about BrewDog and I mentioned the two, the Nanny State, the Elvis AF, and I couldn't remember the other, other punk AF. Punk AF. Punk, punk. Yeah. yeah, it's punk. So I'm drinking that. But, and it's good, and this is the sound of me opening it and pouring it into my Glenn That's got the weirdest sort of like inside a uh, – soviet sub sonar noise that just happened just then did it really yeah i think when That's you put your your can down on the on the desk it was like boom yeah. boom mm. yeah there, there cool. you go <laughs> <laughs> um but so our whiskey expert glenn uh glenn Affleck. oh yeah <laughs> oh why did i say that uh chris ratcliffe you do kind of sound the same. So Chris Ratcliffe um, sent us a, a whiskey recommendation, and it is Legend, L-E-G-E-N-T. And he said this could be the Mastication Nation whiskey, and it is a collaboration, cross-promo collaboration between Suntory. So it's Suntory's chief blender and... Jim Beam. Jim Beam. Not him, not that he's been dead for a long time. He's been time. dead a long time. I don't know if he's an actual person, but um, but their master, their 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 chief blender as well. So you've got, you know, Japan's iconic whiskey producer and one of North America's iconic whiskey producers. And I managed to snag a bottle of it, and I wanted to try it for science. Uh, so I did. It's it's very bourbony. Yeah. So like, let's be clear. It is a bourbon. So uh, the Whiskey Tribe guys also reviewed it, and the got one of the main hosts said uh, summarized this perfectly. To be honest, I have not tried this yet, although my local store liquor store does sell it. Uh, he said it's like someone. The concept when it's explained to you, this is like it's like somebody said you're gonna get a flying car, and then a plane shows up. You're really cool that it's a, you, you have a plane, but it isn't a flying car. Um, and the idea being that I think a lot of people, when they bought the bottle, thought it was blended Japanese and bourbon whiskey done together. What it That's actually what is, is bourbon whiskey that has been aged in Japanese sherry casks, as far as I, I understand it. it. So, I mean, that's really interesting, but it's going to be very bourbon-heavy forward. It's going to have those strong bourbon flavors. Uh, I, I still want to try it. In, in, from I don't know what you paid, but in our local liquor store, it's like $35 US dollars. So it's really affordable if it's good. Yeah, it was around that price point, and it, it was good. It was really good, but I, I think I was expecting more of a Japanese whiskey yes. than, a, than a bourbon, which that's just – my ignorance but it was it was it was good and it's it's a it's a neat idea and a neat collaboration one of i hope it it uh they they go the other way around exactly you know? exactly i would love to see what a you know ethereal japanese whiskey does in a charred oak barrel so yeah you know, 
just for yeah, a little no, bit, absolutely. not even for a long time. Like bourbon gets thrown. Bourbon is so um, malleable and can stand up for its own. It can be thrown in anything. I've had bourbons put into uh, port barrels, into sherry casks. We talked about um, into you know obviously charred new oak, um, and they all you, you still can taste that it's bourbon um, with like yeah. these under under flavors. If you try and do that with an Irish whiskey, which the Irish whiskey I've been drinking in. Drinking in drinking has, <laughs> has is an Irish whiskey that is then aged at the end of the bourbon barrel, and that's that's a good gateway drug to Irish whiskey as well. So yeah, I mean I it, I'm I'm very eager to try it. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was good. Definitely worth. I mean, for that price, it's kind of hard to beat. Exactly. Um, so thank you, Chris, for that recommendation. Uh, so so Belgium. Um, we, no 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 as no, we no, no, do, no no no. First. Oh, what, what? we have to talk about what we ate. Yeah. Yeah yeah. Do you want to go first or should I? You go first. Okay. So I have spent most of this week, I only got back a couple days ago, up in Grand Lake, Colorado, oh, elevation yes. 8,700 feet. Uh, had to pass over some 1,200 feet, uh, you know, passes to get there. is rather rather dicey. And the weather, had uh, not just up there, but down here where I am in Denver, uh, was minus 25 degrees Celsius with the wind chill. So it actually hurt to breathe. And my eyelashes froze. So fun times all around. Anyway. Go up there, and we are in a, our cabin, and Grand Lake is just down the road, and they, you know, we're gonna go get some food. And I see on the menu, sorry, on the on Google, there is a place called uh, called Sagebrush Barbecue. So I'm like, cool, I'll drive into town. It's about a mile and a half down the road, and, and and check it out. Drop the family off at the cabin and head into town. Let's just say that you know you're in mountain towns. When I eventually got to the liquor store uh, to pick up some stuff, and I was like, hey, um, when do you guys salt your streets? And they go, oh, we don't in the wintertime because everyone gets around by a snowmobile. This is important <laughs> because about three minutes before this, I was traveling backwards, going sideways for about half a block. And I was like, I'm usually a very good driver in the snow. Uh, but it was, they don't, they, they plow the streets, but, um, they don't salt them. So if you hit, if you can't see the edges of the, of the road, you're going to, uh, hydroplane with snow, I guess. Uh, that was fun. Uh, and so when I finally Jeez. got to my destination, luckily no one else was in the car, just me. Uh, I, you know, I got to my destination to pick up my food. Uh, the, the guy gave me. Uh, a beer for the road to calm my nerves. Um, but I had, uh, this place does a really good barbecue and I had a uh, brisket and elk bratwurst. Um, but I mm. do, I, I was, and it was really good. And I bought some down here in Denver, some, some uh, elk and smoked cheddar sausages that I'm going to try later on probably tomorrow. But one of the things they had on the menu was their wild game sausage platter, which was wild boar sausage with cranberry and apricot, elk bratwurst with jalapenos and cheddar cheese and buffalo bratwurst. And if the uh, elk bratwurst was anything to go on, it was really, really good. So if you ever find yourself in the middle of nowhere in, uh, in, um, in Grand Lake, Colorado, check out Sagebrush. How about yourself? That sounds amazing. Well, England, <clears throat> rather incredibly, has also been a frozen tundra. We've mm -hmm. had yeah, very, well. very cold weather. That one was easy. Uh, and snow and ice. And, like, I couldn't get out of my driveway because there was, like, there was snow Nobody has four up, by so fours. It, I mean, I know you do, but nobody really does in England. Yeah, so it was, it was very strange. Um, it was fun for a little bit and then just got irritating. So usually when I want hot chocolate, I just sort of... I get the instant stuff, and then it just mm. makes me angry. No Milo? The Milo, yeah, exactly. Nice throwback. Uh, it's going to fall off and make a noise. I um, looked up some recipes, and Bon Appetit magazine, who have such a great, are such a great resource. I absolutely, it's one of the few magazines I still subscribe to. Um, had a phenomenal hot chocolate. And it takes real hot chocolate. takes work. You have to slowly melt the chocolate, and then pour the, the cream in, and then obscene amounts of sugar and the right type of chocolate i had to go out and get it but i wanted it and it was so it was worth it it took about 20 minutes to make 25 minutes to make properly and like melt all the ingredients down and then thicken and then come to right temperature but it was so good and so satisfying and so perfect for 
the weather that uh, it was absolutely worth every minute of, of it. It's not something that I would want to do more than once every eight months because I could feel myself getting diabetes, <laughs> but it was super tasty. Do you have one of those Mexican frothing sticks? You know what I'm talking about? I don't. I know exactly what you're talking about. No, I don't. I feel like that's like a, if that's the style you want with a bit more, you know, foam on it, then those things are you, like you can't beat them. Like, you know, I know Alton Brown hates Unitaskers, but I feel like that's like one of the things like that and a Kamal. Like you can't like second guess those. You have to go with the thing that they are. Um, I'll try to find the name. I can't remember them. Um, but I, I, I am embarrassed. I was embarrassingly old and very disappointed when I found out that hot chocolate wasn't just melted chocolate that you could drink. Well, you know what? I I was in Estonia once in Tallinn and I um, was wandering around the old city, which is stunning. And I went into a little coffee shop and I got a hot chocolate. I was like, oh, hot chocolate sounds really good. And it was melted hot, melted chocolate. And it it's was like the like, dipping sauce just, that you put uh, yeah, churros the into. Yeah, churros in. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And so they give you it's a little bit more than a shot glass. And I was like, well, that's a bit cheap. Um, actually, more like an espresso, you know. Yeah. And you drink it and you're like, like 45 minutes as it's coated the inside of your mouth and you're like it's so sweet that you feel sick and you know hate yourself after a few sips but time yeah i don't think there was a like a milk product anywhere near that that's funny but perfect Um, uh chocolate it perfectly segues us into the episode yes absolutely have you been to belgium yes actually quite a few times i studied uh, First World War literature um, and, uh, for my A-levels. And so we did the the compulsory uh, sixth form trip to the battlefields and to Ypres and all those places. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that, like, you know, while I did, ha- like, obviously uh, have great reverence for everything I go to on the last night, I got absolutely slackered on, uh, on Belgian beer and uh, had one of the worst hangovers of my life. Which is, I think, appropriate for for Belgium because you know beer is so so important. Um, have you have you been to Belgium? Yeah, I have. Uh, it's it's nice and close to, to where I am, so I've been all over um, for for work and for for pleasure. But yeah, Brussels, Ghent, Bruges, Antwerp, um, all over, and by train too, which is kind of fun. I haven't been to. I mean, I've been to Luxembourg, but I haven't been to Eastern Belgium, um, mm. and I, so I don't know. I think. Liège, well, okay, no, Liège is, is Eastern Belgium, but uh, yeah, not Southeastern Belgium. So I don't know. Um, it's not a massive country, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's definitely got its and regional very, varieties. Very yeah. Yeah, yeah, which we'll talk about. And I think that's like kind of a good place to start is like, you know, there is this assumption that Belgium is is just a place where history happens, but nobody in Belgium makes history. It's like a very sort of dull, boring place that everybody uses as a neutral location. It kind of reminds me of the... Uh, of the uh, Futurama episode with the, the the neutral planet being the head of their UN, and it's like yeah. they're they're about to die, and he goes, "If I don't survive this, tell my wife hello." Like you know, that's yeah. like the, the joke <laughs> about Belgium is they're very sort of um, bureaucratic, diplomatic, and that's yes can be the case, but I also think that there's a lot of, and what we'll get into is like what you think about Belgian food and cuisine at a surface level will be correct. The stereotype is true. The things that come to mind are true. But if you scratch just a little bit behind the surface on all of them, they're absolutely fascinating. Every single one of them is super, super interesting. I mean, like if we just start with the country, the country is only, you know, it is 54 years uh, younger than the US. Like Belgium, everyone thinks is like this old country, but it didn't exist before 1830. It was the area that is now Belgium was half French, and half Dutch, which explains why you have this demarcation line down the middle of it, and you've got Flemish side and the French side, and the languages are different. For such a tiny country, it it comes with all of those influences, and not just the French influences and the Dutch influences, but at the time, those two were the, some of the largest colonial powers in the country, in the world, sorry. So all of the food and the cuisine is also impacted by you know, European refugees, uh, colonial refugees, or just the influx of French and Dutch people in general coming together to make this, to make this country. Yeah, it's um, again, it's interesting what they've achieved in a, in a short time. Like you say, much younger than the U.S. and they had a fairly extensive 
um, colonial slash imperialist ideology, which uh, did not go well. Um, no, not at for all. Anybody. It was uh, they were responsible for some pretty heinous, not pretty, some disgusting atrocities uh, that happened in in Africa for quite a long time, which we'll, which we'll get on to. But yeah, it's a very interesting country. And as you say, they position themselves as this sort of this quasi-neutral, you know, <laughs> we're not going to offend anybody country. But I mean, it's a, it, there are some very beautiful parts of it. Bruges is lovely. Antwerp is fascinating uh, um, mm-hmm. for a bunch of different reasons. Um, but yeah, I've, I, I, I like it. I'm a fan. So let's just jump into the, the big bad boy that everyone's thinking. When you think of Belgium, you think of Belgian chocolate. Um, and to what we were talking about, you know, with, with that colonial past, they owned the Belgian Congo, which is now obviously the Congo. And while the U, while Belgium, you know, chocolate was brought over from, from the New World and, and scattered across, you know, nobility in, in Europe for years before Belgium was a country, 1830, when the Belgians sort of took on uh, colonial aspirations, they used uh, places like, like, uh, like Congo to to produce the raw materials for, for their chocolate. And there's a really interesting revisionist uh, history article I was reading about, which was like, while yes, chocolate did exist prior to their colonial aspirations, um, you know, they really kicked it into high gear when uh, they gained access to the Congo. The next line goes, while most chocolate, uh, Belgian chocolate authorities agreed that uh, their colonial access did not, uh, you know, did not greatly impact the chocolate industry. I'm like, that is, seems a little bit like, no, dude, like you got to big knowledge where you got your raw materials from to make your good chocolate. Absolutely. I think with this, that's, a, that's, that goes for any food, the, the, the provenance and quality of your raw materials often yeah. dictate the quality of the finished product. You can't yeah. dismiss that. But that being said, like it is the third largest um, country in form of sales for for chocolate behind the U.S. and Switzerland, which means it's yeah, got to be num- number one for per capita because those two countries have much larger populations than 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 Belgium. I mean, uh, if I remember correctly, the U.S. was doing twenty billion dollars in sales, Switzerland was doing fourteen billion, and Belgium was doing twelve. So is this like, in is this in gross sales? No, gross sales. Okay. Oh, so exports as well. Yes, both internal and internal sales of chocolate and exporting their chocolate. Um, they are the third largest. I don't know what you said, seller. That's interesting. I, well, uh, I suppose that Cadbury's not not British anymore, is it? So uh, yeah, they classified um, Hershey as the largest, and Hershey owns Cadbury, I guess now. So that would be the the, the big the big bad boy. Um, but it is the most strict when it comes to chocolate. Um, you have to. It has you know it has to call it Belgian chocolate it has to have a ban on artificial anything artificial uh any vegetable or palm oil based fats in there which most of the other countries you can skirt the rules on Belgium is the is the most strict and because of that like you know I, I like Belgian chocolate probably the most you know they, they've been credited with inventing the chocolate bar and the pralines uh, my favorite Love pralines yeah my, my favorite um uh chocolate company of all is an I always mispronounce it. Gal- 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 Galleon, the G. And it's oh like yeah, the yeah, yeah. Yeah, those are friggin' love. But whenever I hear the word praline, I can only think of uh, Wayne's World. If he was nice oh, yeah, and braver, he'd be pralines and dick. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for that quote forever because it perfectly describes somebody I know. Uh, <laughs> I forgot it was from Wayne's World. Yeah, I I know I know what you mean about the little shell chocolates. I think they were they were ubiquitous in our childhood too. They were, um, but yeah, yeah, there's a certain something about Belgian chocolate, and it's 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 flavors different, uh, slightly creamier. I find I yeah. know we're talking sweeping sweeping general generalities, but um, yeah, I mean I think not just as you say, the Belgians are not just. Uh, producing good quality, but they've also been innovators in chocolate with the with the praline and the chocolate bar as as a thing, which is like revolutionary. Where would we be with that? It was just a box of little mini chocolates before, and then you had this bar, which was, you know, for diabetes on the go, <laughs> you, for the for the for the modern uh, glutton on the move. Yeah, exactly. Like and that's me. sort of the I mean, the chocolate out the gate, like you know, you think Belgian chocolate, but like. There's so much history behind it, and like, there's so much, um, 
what's the word I'm looking for, darkness, and no pun intended, um, um, on sort of your favorite chocolate bar that everyone should be. This is why when, I, I remember like 20 years ago when fair trade, uh, you know, on, on bars and, uh, and all that kind of stuff became fashionable. It was always chocolate that kind of like kicked off. Like that was the first place I really saw like the fair trade yeah. uh, symbols was on chocolate bars. Yeah, because the the climates in which uh, cacao and other raw sugar and other raw materials for chocolate are produced um, are generally developing nations that don't mm-hmm. have anywhere near the worker rights uh, and and various other rights like you know um, distribution and 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 factory uh, conditions and production and um, environmental protection and all of that and mm-hmm. they were ripe for exploitation which they were for centuries mm-hmm. until this movement started and i think because it was so endemic in the in the chocolate industry that's where and that and coffee um, yeah oh yeah made the most sense to a to apply free trade uh, uh, fair trade pardon me too yep absolutely um so moving away from this the sweet stuff to from your perspective when you think of Belgian food, what do you think of what? Do you, what's the next word that comes to mind? A waffle, to be completely honest. Okay, so we're jumping around. We're staying with the sweets, actually. Then um, this one was interesting because my wife was like, "Oh yeah, Belgian." I think of Belgian waffles. So I did a little searching here. The Belgian waffle, as we know it, is not Belgian. Not I mean, Belgian. it was inf- invented by a Belgian in the U.S. And from what I can yeah. understand, it was at a, again. Our old friends, World and State Fairs. It was at a World's Fair in Seattle in 1958, I think. Yeah, no, 1958. No, you're right. Uh, in <laughs> in a in the Century 21 exhibition in Seattle, uh, in 1962, as a sort of um, the the Belgian variety of waffle. But I mm. mean, it's important to mention that waffles had existed for centuries beforehand, and in in Belgium they were they were definitely a thing, but there's so many different regional varieties of waffle in Belgium, which we'll come on to, um, that the introduction of this singular Belgian waffle, uh, that's a relatively new thing. It feels like a, something that's always been there. But yeah, this idea of, of, of the Belgian waffle is is not technically a Belgian thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the, the sort of passing sort of put down I saw was the Belgian waffle and the Americans. It even says the Belgian waffle, American waffle, uh, is is an oversimplified version of a Belgian waffle. Of a yeah, of a, of a Brussels waffle. Brussels waffle, which sorry. is which is complicated actually because it's got egg, it's egg white, leavened or yeast leavened. Um, and it can be actually an, an, an ale yeast. So it's, 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 uh, they're much lighter. They're much crispier. They've, they're the divots or whatever you want to call them are way bigger than what you would, I, I would imagine, um, you know, when you picture one. So given the, the Dutch influence, um, it, do we think that like the waffle comes sort of some, the Stroop waffle background or is Bel- are Belgians going to say this is uniquely theirs and how dare you invoke those crafty Dutch bastards? Well, there's, there's, I mean, it goes, you can trace it all the way back to the Greeks. Um, and then the, all the way through um, medieval Europe, like a, like a mix of flour, water, milk, and mm-hmm. eggs. They were what called wafers. And they were cooked on an open fire between two metal plates with long handles. So, I mean, I don't think that the Belgians can claim this as uniquely Belgian. I think they can uh-huh. claim. I think they can claim modern ownership of the to-go style pick-me-up. Like you know, it's not as far as I can understand. It's not a breakfast thing like it is in the U.S. It's way too sweet and heavy. It's like you know when you have your cup of coffee in the in the early mid-afternoon and you grab a a handheld waffle to go. That's sort of their concept of eating it as well, rather than smothered with bacon and uh, whipped cream kind of thing like we do here. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I, it, but basically, I mean, I think everybody in the region, the Dutch, the French, were all doing something reasonably similar around, you know, the the fifteenth, well, sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth century. That's where it used to, it started to show up in art, yeah, and literature, um, describing essentially the same things. Um, Charles the Ninth, who was the king of France for a little bit. 
uh, he, he, uh, he's one of those uh, monarchs who didn't have a whole lot to do. There wasn't much going on during his reign. So he, w- he actually came up with the first legislation for regulating waffle sales. <laughs> uh, so what a legacy to have there. But, but yeah, this in the 19th, 20th, and I guess 21st centuries, it was really um, this Brussels waffle that started to become more prevalent, more identifiable, more what we would recognize as a waffle today. Uh, uh, slight little aside, uh, do you know the connection between uh, a waffle and the biggest sports brand of all time? I do not. Uh, something to do with shoes and the... the so the, the inventor of Nike, the, the creator of Nike, who was at the Oregon, part, uh, Oregon University... Uh, go ducks um he uh was trying to create a better running shoe and he poured rubber into his uh into his waffle maker and uh and you know compressed it and saw that the he thought the grooves would create uh better surface uh, create better uh grip on the ground and that was where the first sort of and then he stapled it to a pair of shoes and that was sort of the, the first ever pair of nike shoes was made from a waffle maker so yeah small world wow well there you go I hope he didn't make waffles in that waffle maker no, after that. I hope so. I hope it's not either. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think everybody loves waffles. Nobody doesn't like yeah, waffles. Yeah, you, you do. And you can get them everywhere. They are they are all over uh, Belgium. Um, they're, they're a street treat. Um, and you can get them with, with various with various toppings as well, which is, which is kind of nice. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I like them. I think, um, you know, it's like you know, whipped cream. They're they're uh, they're one of those foods, and I'm struggling to think of a something that's similar that's like they're really aimed at tourists. They've kind of been reversed, osmosed back into into Belgian identity mm. as the Belgian waffle, mm-hmm. and so like you can go around the use, US. Yeah, you get them with like Nutella and and you know. Uh, f- like jam or whatever. Um, so yeah, you can get them everywhere. And I, you know, so I think the irony is, is that when we think of Belgium, we think of Belgian waffles, which are not intrinsically Belgian, but yeah, it sounds like when you expected me to say something else, when I, when I said, I think of, Oh I, yeah. No, no, well, for me, of. and I guess this plays into more the, the, the French influences is when I think of Belgian food, I think of moule frites, which again, I'm, it, okay. You know, that's the French side of things. And whenever I go to a French bistro, they have it on the menu. But for some reason, when I think of Belgian food, I always think of moule frites. I don't know why. Fries. It, it is Belgian. It is Belgian. And fries are, we'll get into it in a second, like, you know, a, a warring ground for food ownership, which Belgium squarely says that they own. Um, but I, I don't know why. I think it's love. I think mussels were my first shellfish that I got into, uh, and I just loved all the variations. Are you a moule frites kind of person? I am, but my eldest son, is the, he will destroy a bucket of moule. Does he? Absolutely. Oh, did, has he ever him. had, like, you know, like proper moule frites? Like, you know, with the, oh, yeah, yeah. Does he have a favorite uh, style? Because as, as, as you know, there's a there's multitude of different ways you can get it served. He well, I mean, in terms of um, yeah, he likes uh, Marinier, of course, because he's he's a wino, so that's that's <laughs> <laughs> that's white wine, shallot, shallots, parsley, and butter. That that's and it's like and the, that, the most ubiquitous I, way. I was just gonna say that, yeah, and I think, I mean, moule free are is Belgium's, I mean, unofficial official national food too, national mm-hmm. dish. Um, and Which is weird yeah, because like all the other countries in Europe kind of do a variation on it that live by the sea. And again, they're like, no, it's ours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's literally, it's like, it's a bucket of mussels that are uh, prepared in, in a couple of three or four different types of ways. Um, and a bucket of French fries, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And I guess, I guess this is more of a question for, for Luke. Does he... Does he dunk his uh, his fries individually, or does he take a handful of fries and shove them in the in the cooking liquid and just let them all get soggy and and in there? He, the former. He dips the he dips the fries in the whatever particular sauce. He, he is a man, his of, a, a man of refinement. Yeah, I think you. I I I'm very sure I had a lot to do with that because the latter option sounds incredibly messy. <laughs> 
but they, we'll run through the other ones that you might be able to see. Uh, Mules natura, Naturis, I, I'm not going to even try and pronounce, uh, my French is terrible, which is just mules steamed, uh, muscle steamed with celery, leeks, and butter. Uh, moule à la crème, which is thickened with flour and cream. Uh, moule à la beer, which is instead of using white wine, you're using a fine Belgian beer. So, you know, I think there are, it has become quite fusionized, uh, especially in the U.S. You'll find ones with like almost like a, a, a Vietnamese pho broth that they've been boiled in, um, which is quite cool, like a spicy spin on stuff with lemongrass. Those are all really, really nice. I think it's something that if you have the confidence to take on and you have a good purveyor of muscles, have fun with it. Like you can try anything that like steams your muscles and you want to impart that flavor into your, uh, into your muscles. I saw one perno, which I would absolutely fuck, I would gag at, but like, Hey, if that's your thing, go for it. Yeah. That doesn't sound particularly appetizing to me either. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, do you, do you want to talk about the, the, the elephant in the room for the region? Um, which is the second half of, of Mulfried, uh, you know, the, the fries, uh, Belgian fries, uh, they say that, French fries is the worst abomination that's ever happened in the world. It's not French fries. It's it's Belgian fries. And French just refers <laughs> to the cutting of it, not the country. <laughs> yeah. So, the, I mean, the, the Belgians are very um, passionate about this. They, they generally consider the, the fries a Belgian invention, uh, which is very interesting. It really seems like every country in Europe has their claim to it. And I think what we're finding is more and more... Um, Thomas Jefferson's claim to inventing the French fry uh, has completely gone out the window. He may have invented the, the potato chip, but not the French fry. Um, I think it is a, pretty much a toss-up between France and, and Belgium. The, uh, the argument here is that because Belgium wasn't its own country until 1830, and all historical evidence says that French fries were invented pre-1830, sort of around the 1600s. By definition, it has to be French, but it could be said that it was from the Belgian region of the France at the time, I guess. Please, Belgians, don't hate me for saying that. But, like, it existed before 1830, so therefore the country didn't exist. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think uh, several countries can make uh, a, a claim to this now gloriously ubiquitous, ubiquitous dish and they would all be strong arguments but i think well for the purposes of this episode i think we have to let them have it <laughs> but i think what is uniquely there is, is what they what they top them with um they seem to take that and run crazy whilst like it is very very common in holland to do aioli and and mayonnaise with your chip your fries as well like they, they do that in belgium but i was just like running down the list it's like you know pineapple relish or spicy whatever and like just like they they put them in the um sort of cylindrical paper thing throw your fries in there and then it's every sauce under the sun and it's not considered like you know when i when i order french fries in the u.s and i'm like hey can i get some ranch with that people are like oh you weirdo like they encourage fry condiment experimentation it seems they are very liberal in that sense yeah, I mean, fries are great, but they're not. I mean, on their own, it's like you need something. So I'm, I'm a, a big advocate of this philosophy of fry <laughs> condiment experimentation. Yes, I think anything that allows you to, uh, I mean, everyone loves potatoes, and all they need really is some salt and pepper. But, uh, I, I, yeah, if it's a good way for you to try things out, potatoes are the excellent vector. I haven't said that this season. Woo! <laughs> to to try things vector. out. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, I know there's, there's dozens of other Belgian foods that we haven't even scratched the surface on. I think for the sake of the, the food part of this, we want to hit the bad, big bad boys and talk about sort of, sort of the below the surface. But I think the big thing that I think about, regardless of food, when it comes to Belgian is what I'm drinking right now, Belgian, Belgian beer. Uh, are yep. you a fan of Belgian beer when you are drinking the hard stuff? No. <laughs> See, this is an interesting thing. The stereotypes of what Belgian beer has become or what has become hipsterfied, I can't stand. I like old school pilsners. I like sort of traditional French, as our grandmother has, like French um, you know, table beers, which are very common in Belgium. But the trend of the Trappist or the sour beers cannot stand and i had a vogue with them back in the day but like these days is not my thing so have you you've you've tried these right 
I, I like I like like you say I like Stella I like the Pilsners but the 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 Chimay's the the Lefe's of the world I'm I just don't like them I, I used to drink a lot of Lef uh, or Lefe or how to pronounce it uh, and I always think it's trying to be a monastery beer but technically isn't and we'll get onto that in a second but uh, I think. Yeah, they were just a bit too much for me. And then now the thing is, like, every if you buy a Belgian beer, nine times out of ten, in the U.S. or England, and it's not like a you know a supermarket Belgian or a Stella, you're gonna be pushing the ABVs no matter what. Um, mm-hmm. But did you know what a Trappist beer was before reading the show notes? No, I did. Had you had you no, ever I heard did. the term? Nope. Okay, so it's very quite common in your Brooklyns, your Berkeleys, your Santa Monicas, your certain parts of Bel- uh, Berlin. Um, it, it's, if you go to a place that specializes in Belgian food, they'll, they'll rave about their, their Trappist beer list. Uh, Trappist beer, by definition, is beer that is brewed by Trappist monks or in a Trappist monastery. And Trappist oh. is a break off of, of a certain kind of Calvinism. Um, there are only 13 officially recognized Trappist breweries in the world of which five of them are in Belgium, which are Orvel, Chimay, which is the, the big one that everybody recognizes that the the beer um, logo, uh, Westvelverturn, uh, Roquefort, West Male, and Ackle. Uh, I apologize for that third one. That one was hard to say. Uh, and they're all top fermented ales. And so you can have Trappist style, but... For them to be officially Trappist, they need to be adhering to these uh, these these edicts, which are the beer must be brewed within the walls of a Trappist monastery, either by the monks themselves or under their supervision. The breweries must be of a secondary importance within the monastery, and it should witness to the business practice proper to a monastic way of life. The brewery is wow. not intended to be a profit-making venture. The income covers the living expenses of the monks and the maintenance of the buildings and grounds. Whatever is remains must be donated. So like, this is like a friggin' like French wine monastery kind of deal with beer. So if you aren't having one of those beer companies, it's not a real Trappist. But the unfortunate thing for like, I think you and I is that they generally are four different styles of beer that they do. Again, they're all top fermented ales but their ankles which is basically sing- singular your classic three to five uh, percent uh, uh, ABV doubles which get into the eight to ten per- uh, sorry seven to eight percent triples which is very fashionable right now which is pushing on on ten percent and quadruples which can get up to like 15 percent that's not beer to me that's wine and it tastes yeah that's too gross much. like I don't like these beers at all and I'm sorry that they are like the sort of emotional hipster adopted child of IPAs as far as they're in no way related, but like as far as like most people who are not monks will have large mustaches who are drinking this stuff. Um, I, 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 I'm just not a fan. Um, But what about their, what about the, the Belgian other famous style, which is the sour, the sour beer? I like those. Uh, I like those w- once in a while. Uh, Matt Galligan, a friend of mine, introduced me to those ages ago, actually during our San Francisco episode. Yeah, I remember I was there. And oh, you were there? Of course you were. I, I really liked that. I, li- I like, I mean, it's not something I'd want to drink pints of, but it was a nice change of pace. There's a term called lambics, which is, if you don't know sour biz, then the term will say lambic or something like that. And that's a, a reference to the kind of uh, uh, bacteria they're using to turn the, the beer sour. Um, they're either using uh, a specific bacteria or they're using uh, fruit to to turn it sour. Uh, the most famous being framboise, which is uh, raspberry sour beer, which my wife, when I was in college, uh, devoured. Um, she loved it. She never tried it before. But uh, there was Pub Oxford, which is on the roundabout in Cowley Road. Uh, I don't know if it's still called Pub Oxford, but they used to do a very... Oh, no, it's called the Cape of Good Hope or something like that now. I don't know. Um, they used to do uh, framboise on tap, which uh, you didn't see it very often. Um, I just don't... I don't like sour beers. Again, the ABVs are usually pretty high as well. I don't necessarily like the fruity ones, but the sours was, was a nice change of pace. I liked, I liked that. Um, again, not all the time. And then, well, the, the, the big one, 
playing into its French and and Dutch uh, backgrounds is is the big bad Pilsner of the world, Stella Artois, which uh, has been around for 300 years or so. Um, it was uh, originally just a, a classic Pilsner, you know, in, a, in sort of the German style, uh, which is kind of what it's maintained and, and has not really been changed too much. But they made a really big change in the 1900s around 1903 to become a Christmas beer. And that's why it has the star on it. It says it was invented in 1366, but that's been contested quite a lot. I think the brewery that it was been brewed in has been around since 1366, the original one. But this actual recipe was from the 1700s. Um, but it's Stella Artois, you know, Stella mean, meaning star. Um, the only breweries that I could find are in Europe that do them. Maybe now that they're owned by somebody else, maybe they're brewed elsewhere. Um, yeah, they're owned by Anheuser-Busch. Yeah, so maybe this is brewed under license uh nope it is brewed in Louvain, belgium uh is it? that's good yeah that's interesting um but you know as we alluded to earlier in england it was considered a very sort of blue collar working class somewhat rough and politically incorrectly named uh up until the 1900s it's the 1900s the, the, the 1990s uh, I know that England has tried to do a bit of a, of a uh, marketing change on that with the sort of gold chalice, and that's become very common, uh, sort of like a marketing thing. In the U.S., it is considered fancy, like, you know, you go into a high-end, marketing makes you believe you go into a high-end restaurant or uh, into a very nice four-star hotel restaurant lounge, and they will have it there, and they'll serve it to you in the gold chalice or the gold rim chalice and they'll use that special knife to brush away the the foam head uh i remember and, that and they're trying to and they've done a big thing on like you can buy the gold chalices and like they give water donations to, to you know countries in need of water and stuff like that so they're really pushing to get rid of that negative connotation but i still enjoy it regardless of the name it's kind of like when you go to hong kong everyone still drinks Carlsberg, and nobody drinks Carlsberg outside of hong kong and Denmark, uh, it's kind of like you know Stella Artois. It's 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 lost its vote except for a few diehard people. Yeah, it's uh, it's fine. It's good stuff, and I think it's interesting how it's priced in the U.S. as well. Yes, yeah. they they even they even made fun of that uh, reassuringly expensive. Isn't that Stella reassuringly expensive? Yeah, but isn't that the is that the American tagline? It wasn't anymore. But like, was that American tagline or was that England making fun of itself? It was it was in the, it was in England. It was from like. The eight starting in the eighties, um, they wanted to to make it feel, um, yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to see what the, and the, I, the ABV on this thing is, and I can't find it. Got to be like four point five, or I don't see. Oh, five percent, exactly five percent. Feels stronger than what it would be in England. I feel like in England it might be brewed less because there is a brewery for Stella in in somewhere somewhere in England, but uh, that's higher than I thought it would be. Anyway, I enjoy Stella. Is the, the yeah, take there's away. something wrong with that. I would be very interested to hear what people think about Stella. And you know, in general, like what is what do people think about you know the the the, the fashionable beers that have become uh, you know ubiquitous when you think of Belgium? You know, are are they too frou frou for their own uh, for their own good? You know, are there? I I I don't know. I it's it the 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 monk thing is interesting and. It's safe, and that's historically why it was in, it was considered, you know, done to be done by uh, by monasteries. Like, you know, it wasn't safe to drink the water, so you have to drink fermented alcohol or fermented water, um, and that's why mm -hmm. often, you know, children were encouraged to drink ales, um, as they should. Uh, <laughs> and um, you know, it, it's 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 an interesting history there, but I think they've just gone off the deep end, or whoever's marketing them around the world. I'm sure there's some lovely low alcohol Trappist beers out there that don't taste like sour ass, but like I'm, I haven't found them yet. So if you have recommendations that are easily found around the world, I'm all ears. I like Belgian beers. Also, why do they serve them in champagne bottles? I only want a small one. I don't need a friggin', you know. Yeah. I'd love to know that as well. I'd love to know that. And I'd love to know what, uh, if you have a favorite Belgian beer or Belgian food, as Will said earlier, we, we definitely did, um, uh, skip over a lot, but just in the interest of time. But uh, if you have a favorite Belgian food, and actually we we did we did 
um, put a, put a post out on Twitter, and, and people were very generous with their with their thoughts. Um, Rohan, Ronan, and James Hand again. Thank you guys, uh, uh, and to a lot a lot of you guys for for giving us your thoughts. But if we miss something, or the, or you uh, have a particularly favorite Belgian food, or Belgian beer, or Belgian drink, or Belgian food tradition, we'd love to know more about it. Yeah, I think you know, like we did with uh, the the holiday episode in the last season, like there we focused on like what is Christmas like or the holiday season like in your country when we focus on the US, the Britain, Japan, Australia. Um, if there's any sort of like food etiquette that we're missing from these countries, like that would be interesting. Um, I think that we were in a scenario where there are things that are considered appropriate, like passing before you know, passing your food to the left or some cutlery you use, or I'm not saying this for Belgium, I'm just saying in any, in general, for any country that we do, uh, eating with your hand, which hand to eat with, like, you know, that kind of stuff. That's where we're going to need your help. So, uh, you know, we'll be doing C next. Uh, and I have absolutely no idea of what we should be doing for, for C besides the, the great white North. Yes. So suggestions of course are always welcome on that one too. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I, 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 didn't know what to expect of this episode, but I am pleased. I think there's a lot to to be excited about with Belgian food, and they've given the world so many so many great uh, culinary wonders and just delicious things. <laughs> chocolate, very yeah. very good chocolate. Exactly. And beer. What more do you want? <laughs> chocolate and beers. Chocolate, beer, waffles, and fries. It's God's yeah. country. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, so yeah, if you have suggestions for C, let us know. Um, I would ask if you have any exciting culinary adventures come up, but we're not allowed to leave our houses. So uh, I guess what I will say until next time. Well, see, I don't know what to do here without offending oh. people. So is it Bon Appetit? Is it Prost? Is it Cheers? Is it uh, oh, Salut? Uh, what, what, is du- what is Dutch for Cheers, by the way? You I were Anyway, I'm sitting on the French there. French side, so it's or or the or the German interpretations. Uh uh Bon Appetit and Salut. There you go. <laughs>